Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good lad. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. In the famous words of Shane Horgan on this very podcast, Dylan Hartley is a bit of a turkey. Guys, I'm afraid his full turkiness was on display. On His turkey feathers were fully plumed and on display on Friday night against Leinster. Oh, Murphy Ken here. Sorry, is that, is that a Planet Earth reference? No. I didn't see last night. I'd be surprised if the humble turkey... Although I suppose it is the Christmas season. No, this is Monday's Irish Times Second Campus okay. Podcast. Murph, I, I'm a, there's bad news on that score. We'll get back to Dylan Hartley, but oh, okay. I haven't seen it yet. I haven't seen oh, it. Oh, right. So, really? Yeah, I mean, there were a few people debating on Twitter what, what it was going to be, and I didn't have the heart to get back mm. and say it's just... Pleasure delayed happen. is pleasure enhanced, so... Is Thursday, there, is, is, Thursday's it, podcast, yeah, folks. Yeah. Could there be an issue there of overkill as well, Murph? Maybe it's best to leave... Do uh, you know what? I might leave it to the last episode of the series and come back with one more. Okay. Yeah, otherwise... Fair, fair enough, on. I think fair that enough. was the last episode. Well then, come on, we're not going to do it five weeks in a row and then hold off on the last episode. You know what you remind me of, Owen? <laughs> Go one on. of the um, fat <laughs> monkeys that okay. live in the Indian city of Jaipur. Yeah. The pink city. Oh, uh, they were doing cities. This yeah. time. Oh. They left out C and did city. And I thought, really? Are we not going to go back and have a look at the, the blue uh, that covers ah, 70% yeah, of the planet? Does that. Um, but you know, there, are, there are these monkeys that live in Jaipur who make a, a fine living by uh, stealing uh, vegetables from the market. Uh, and in fact, they've got so much more food than the forest monkeys and that many of them are obese mm. uh, based on based on uh, the monkeys that I, that I saw. You're not really used to seeing obese wild animals, but you're beginning to see them now as they live in cities. And uh, they have superb uh, problem... Sorry? Sorry, I was just waiting for you to get around to you mentioning something other than their fatness. I've literally, I've, literally just, I've literally just run <laughs> a 10k race this weekend. I could not be feeling fitter. <laughs> no, no, no. What I, the, the way in which these monkeys are glutted yeah. on, uh, on sort of the, the low-hanging fruit. Well, I should say the stacked... 
fruit, yeah. the high piled fruit. Um, reminds me a little bit of you. You only have to reach out your greedy little hand to pluck another uh, fat analogy from the <laughs> uh, from the pile. You've, yeah. It's been it's got too easy for you. Is what I'm saying. You've become brazen, and uh, maybe you need to maybe a, a little time away from it would uh, would help. You know what Shane Horgan actually said. Go on. He said that I was listening back to. It, he said that Hartley's England teammates that what they would be thinking when they looked around the dressing room and saw this guy was a captain was oh oh no, this guy's a bit of a turkey. Right. Okay. So uh, I mean, it's yeah. the, it's the same basic yeah. principle. I mean, I, I think it's always good practice to. To quote the gentleman exactly. Well, why though? I mean, what's so bad about? It? I mean, apart from okay, well, it's he, all the headbutting and the violent. gouging and the elbowing and the telling refs are effing cheats and the biting, and the in biting. A, in a sense, though, oh, that's <laughs> yeah, it's really an issue with it. Why would why would that necessarily be disqualifying? What because, I'm talking well, about well, as, as the well, role of a rugby captain because you want your rugby captain to stay on the field hmm. and not be sent off and then suspended for a good chunk of your career, yeah. over a year's worth of suspensions. That that would be the point there. Keeps him fresh. Well, there's, <laughs> there's an argument there. This latest act of violence, we went through a little bit of the catalogue there. Uh, uh, there doesn't seem to be a consensus on what to call this. Is it a swinging arm? A haymaker? Cheap that shot. Cheap shot. Cheap shot. Cheap shot. Cheap shot. It's probably a cheap shot. Well, it was from behind for a start. Pretty cheap. That's not great. Uh, it, was a, it was from behind on a man who, as far as I recall, was on his knees at the time. And uh, it was, he tried to disguise it as something else. Uh, other than a you know club like forearm to the side of the head, mm. yeah, which which was bad. Uh, although I mean, just just to return to the point of, of these players would look at him and think, oh no, this guy's our captain. There must be something. He must have some redeeming features. It can't just all be no neck, no you know he's tiny good, brain aggression. Yeah, he's a good player. He's a good hooker. Well, there must, there must be. He must have some qualities. I mean, Eddie Jones is not an idiot. You know, he picked he picked him as the captain. He must have done that for a reason. I think he felt like he was an idiot watching this through the night. He was at the stadium. I don't know if he saw, saw the camera the, pan to him and he was... I, no! I saw that, actually. He looked, he looked really disgusting. An actual face pan. You know, it, it reminds you, again, of why face pan became a sort of, you know, an internet phrase. So that's basically what people do when they see something that makes them just really, really disappointed. But there must be some... There must be. He must have got something going for him. Yeah, I mean, you're looking at me and Owen for answers. Uh, I I don't know what to say to you. Other I don't know than, why you'd make him your captain. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's, there's he, enough. There's en- there are enough good players in England that you don't need to make Dylan Hartley your captain. I can only assume that he felt that he wants well, he wants somebody aggressive as his captain, somebody who can lead thing, things physically and, and set down a marker. But also maybe that this man in particular, Dylan Hartley, if he can show the re- show everybody else that you can play on the edge, but I don't know. I'm trying to. I'm trying to. Was he maybe describe thoughts to Eddie Jones? And I really don't know. I don't know why you would do it. So I'm going to stop now making up nonsense talk. Maybe he thought that that um, the captaincy would actually cause Dylan Hartley to begin behaving in a more presidential manner. There could have been that. Well, yeah, he has been captain of Northampton for a long time, though, and it, it didn't stop him, you know, uh, behaving like that for Northampton for years. England's so rose, though. England's rose is a different kettle, yeah, kettle of fish. Of maturation. Might be greatly speeded up if you're wearing the, the white of England. I'm not entirely sure again. We'll get into the rugby in a second. Andy Lee is popping into us later to talk Joshua Klitschko and another win for Katie Taylor on Saturday night. Joshua, Anthony Joshua, this is stopped Eric Molina in the third round of their very mismatched fight. That was his 18th knockout in 18 fights. And the next one is going to be in April against Vladimir Klitschko. So we'll talk to Andy about that. You're a proud Irishman, right, Ken? Yes. What would you say if another country wanted Born and to raised here. claim you as their own? 
say the, I don't know, the, the British Virgin Islands or Tanzania or someone came along and said, we like what you do, Mr. Early. We like your work. Yeah. We feel it's what we need at the moment. Uh-huh. We're going to give you a lot of money and yeah. you are going to have to change your name and become a Tanzanian journalist. I would say... Sounds good. <laughs> it sounds really good. I never expected to be able to sell something as, <laughs> as uh, abstract as my nationality. Um, but let, let's talk terms. That, I mean, that would be the first conversation. Oh, you'd bargain I suppose hard. at some point you'd want to know why exactly are you asking me to do this? What's the, mm. what's the, what's the interest? What's in it for you? Is uh, what I would want to know at, at some stage as well, well. I ask you this question because the issue of fluid national identity is causing a bit of a stir after the weekend's European Cross Country Championships. Fernando McCormick, one of Ireland's best athletes, finished fifth in this race. This is the third time in recent years that she's been beaten to medals by African runners representing European countries. Mm-hmm. In particular, Turkey. Turkey have uh, have gone after this rather relaxed rule, uh, even more relaxed in athletics than it is in most other sports, whereby you can pretty much just take whoever you want if they're willing to uh, represent you. Yasmin Khan won that race that Fanula McCormick was in. Khan used to be Vivian Jemutai of Kenya. The silver medalist was Miriam Akta, also from Turkey, who as recently as May of last year was running as Miriam Jepchircher, also of Kenya. Now McCormick is not the most... Uh, I, I've never heard Fanula McCormick deliberately stir her horn's nest or anything like that. She's uh, not somebody who courts controversy, but she couldn't help herself afterwards. She was furious with this, uh, the fact that this is allowed to exist and reckons that it needs to end, this transfer of allegiances. Well, Did you have a point? I think the, I think you have to be very careful here, obviously. But what what's going on in cross-country at the moment is d- people who have never trained in a country or have lived in a country for any extended period of time whatsoever representing that country. And I think we can all agree that that's just kind of farcical. That uh, obviously there, we've benefited in this country massively from grandmother grandmothers of uh, uh, professional football players coming over and helping us to World Cups. There is a connection there. I mean, you can argue how deeply felt the connection was before it became prudent for us to ask this player to represent us and prudent for the player to come and play with us. I mean, maybe it was non-existent, but maybe there is a connection there subsequently found on the back of sporting expediency that leads to an understanding of that person's heritage which you can actually say, for better or worse, something has happened there that is that is good, and that there there is a connection. Maybe not at your first cap, but at your fortieth cap. Uh, in in this case, and I mean, you know, I I don't think that there is any connection there, and I think that the European Championships, you know, is it, it's for people who come from European countries. I mean, that's that's basically it. I mean, if you. Uh, have had to move to a country at the age of 11 or 12 because of economic circumstance or political circumstance, then obviously you're free to race for the... the, the your adopted country. Your adopted country, of course. But if you've never lived in a country or never trained in a country for any longer than two or three months, then, you know, I think we can all agree that's just ridiculous. Okay, what about... The, what about if you move to a country not through any of mm. any of the issues that you talk about? Economic, yeah, you just you are CJ Stander, for example. Yeah, and you want to move to Ireland. You want to ultimately play for a country that you aren't from and don't have a grandmother from. But you go and play that country. You learn the national anthem. Play for that country. Learn the national anthem. Represent it with distinction. Bed into life in your new country, in your new province and city. Where are you on that? Yeah, it's, well, it's... <laughs> I don't see the problem with any of this. Any of this? You don't see, even see the problem with Kenyan athletes changing their name, pretending they're Turkish, 
having never even been in there in this country. Countries are made up constructs anyway. I mean, I don't have a problem with them changing their name. Well, they're allow they're allowing. Yeah, but then why have rules for any event? The rules are that you're supposed to be from a specific country to, as Murph says, to race in Europe. Mm. And it's very unfair on athletes. Forget about Fionnul McCormick for a second. All the other athletes who are in and around medals to be beaten out by Kenyan runners. Um, you, don't find, you don't find any issue with well, that? Well, I mean, immigration, the, migration is a fact of... It's not immigration. They haven't, they haven't that's exactly it. That's, they, that's they, they haven't left Kenya. I mean, yeah. they're, they're training, they're living where they were. And they're just taking money, loads of money off another country to represent. It's them. a kind of meta migration. I mean, they're <laughs> the um, money is migrating. It's maybe it's more a sort of form of international trade, globalization. Uh. It definitely <laughs> definitely has something to do with globalization. Um, I don't. I'm just, I'm struggling to get worked up about this one. You know, it's it's. What's the point of international sport? I don't know. Okay, it's a good question. <laughs> right, okay, it's a good question. But you know, I mean, if we're if we're saying, oh, you know, I mean, international sport, I suppose, at some level, is about you know, winning, being the best, competing against the best. It's not really about, yeah, oh, you, this is a, this should be a protected category, you know. Well, Fernando McCormick competes against the best at the Olympics and mm. World Championships in Europe. She competes against European people and regularly beats them and has become European champion in the past. Well, well, but, but, but I mean, what? I mean, so there's a there's a Turkish. Athlete of Kenyan, from Kenya, a Kenyan origin. athlete of Ke- a Kenyan athlete <laughs> of Kenyan, never been to Turkey. Who the Turks are saying here's here's a Turkish athlete. Yeah, here is a Turkish yeah. singlet to race in. Uh, well, in you know, I mean, if that's that's up to Turkey. You know, if, if if she's if she's a Turkish athlete, then Turkey's in Europe. Therefore, she's other sports have rules. You know, yeah. even even in rugby, you at least have to be naturalized. You have to actually live in a country for a few years and contribute something to one of their teams to be allowed to represent them internationally. And the IWF used to have slightly more strict rules, apparently. I think it was only in the last few mm. years that they well, I, I think it as easy yeah. as this. I, I think you're an outlier in this uh, argument, Ken, in that you don't seem to think that nationality of any description, that you you think it's a construct, a uh, political construct, well, which is, is fine. But yeah, well, which is fine. But I mean, I think that for a lot of people, international sport is important and the idea of nationality in whatever guise is also important. And it, the CJ Stander... Uh, example is, I mean, there's no one has been more committed playing for Ireland this year than CJ Sander. I mean, there's nothing that that man can do to further prove that this is not a jolly for him. I mean, he is a 100% committed Irish rugby player for Team Ireland, for the Irish rugby team. But I mean, at the same time, the rules as they stand now are if you live for three years in Ireland, that makes you eligible to play for Ireland. And I think that we can all, I think that everyone in rugby agrees that that's too lenient. That it's one, it's I don't, one contract. I don't, know, I don't think everyone in rugby I don't, I don't thinks think that at all. I think, I think there is an argument, there's, there, is, there is opposition to that, but I wouldn't say everybody in rugby feels that three years is too lenient at all. Yeah. A lot of people are quite happy with it. A lot of teams are quite happy with it. Yeah, I, I, think, um, I think one professional one professional contract is not enough for you to... That's not enough. That's not enough to prove your the nationality. Your, your uh, I mean, it's 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 not that it's not enough to prove your nationality. It's just not stringent enough to ensure to to safeguard rugby international rugby from becoming basically just a glorified branch of the club game. Ken's dream. Yeah. No. No countries. No borders. <laughs> worldwide. It's just instead of this, this southern hemisphere northern hemisphere divide, just have southern hemisphere players playing for the northern hemisphere teams. And that should, in fairness, probably lead to a levelling off of standards. Jerry Thornley's in studio. Jerry, how are you? <laughs> Very good, thank you. I'm sure you are. You seem quite invigorated. You were 
covering the two games in England over the weekend. A nice couple of days. Yeah, um, a weekend in the English Midlands and Northampton and Coventry and uh, very enjoyable. Never thought I'd say that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, was over at the Northampton Leinster game on Friday night and stayed on for um, Connacht away to Wasps yesterday and uh, saw the other two in the box. The Leinster performance was well the match was extraordinary in some ways I don't know what you made of the you made the point yourself in the report like three debutants in the back line it's getting to a stage now where I don't know if Leinster Sport is taken for granted but there's just this this another you know, Carberry gets injured gets injured he gets it's just this non-stop supply of young players who seem to take to the this sort of level of rugby with no major problem this is also an organisation that provided five latest new debutants for Ireland in the November window and they have three European debutants in their back line, um, and they're wobbling at that stage. But I thought the pack really pulled it together at that juncture. When the score was 10-all, Tom Wood gave away a silly penalty for 13-10. That was a pivotal moment. I, I thought Leinster were wobbling then, but all the reshuffling they had to do. It seems to be a team with Irish back lines for the last five or six weeks. Um, and you're right, I was thinking about it afterwards. There is no conveyor belt like this in Irish rugby, but actually there's none in European rugby. There's no team in Europe that, is, that would have three homegrown indigenous products of their school stroke, academy structure, making their debut simultaneously and racking up a handsome 37-10 win away from home. None, none of the English or French teams? Uh, not, obviously, not a lot of them are, are big money signings, yep. but some of them surely have pretty good youth systems in place. They have so. pretty good youth, but nothing that's chugging out such an amount of players at a consistently good rate. Like you think James Tracy off the bench, what a good player is. You think of what Josh van der Fleer has done this season, Joey Carberry, Adam Byrne looks built for the modern game he's quick he's tall he's aggressive um, he's good in the air I mean it's just that player after player keeps coming through and you're right it is almost taken for granted but they're the envy of any other team in Europe I think in that sense The Northampton shot themselves in the foot a little bit <laughs> we've been talking about our, our friend Dylan Hartley a little bit earlier on I don't, know if you, I don't know if there's any theory about Dylan Hartley that it can encompass all that there is about Hartley Jerry. but how does this keep happening? It's extraordinary really when you just look at the rap sheet and 54 weeks of bans for, from six different suspensions. There's um, headbutting, eye gouging, punching, um, elbowing, biting, abusing a referee, and now striking with an arm. I don't know if there's anything left that you can add to this rap sheet. It's quite extraordinary. I don't know if any other player in the history of the game has got a rap sheet quite like this. And this is his third sending off in the last three years. So it's not like... I mean, in one sense, you, as somebody joked afterwards, you got to admire him because the last year thing was clearly an act, you know, he, but he's always, it's just something is always waiting to go off and you wonder what more you can do. I certainly, when it comes to the disappearing hearing, I think it's kind of low entry two weeks, mid entry six weeks, top entry ten weeks. I don't want to see anything about good conduct in the in the in, in, in a reduction of weeks for good conduct. I don't care how well he behaves at this hearing or how contrite he is or how much he accepts his latest piece of guilt. I think that his his rap sheet has to count severely against him and it has to be minimum six and possibly these, ten weeks. These rulings always are a little bit convoluted. There's always, as you say, there's a, there's a minimum entry and sometimes they might give a, might give a four-week or six-week ban and they'll take a week off for previous... I, I, presumably with this guy, that just won't happen. That's not even on the radar. It can't happen. It just can't happen. And there is a really serious issue. I think it's very easy for an Irish journalist to just sit here in a studio and say, oh yeah, ban an English captain for a long time. It's playing to the gallery a bit. It's going to go down very well. It'll be very popular within Ireland. But on a serious issue, you know, at what point is he becoming a serious liability and a serious danger to all opposition players at any given moment in time? I mean, we'll be tied that something serious had happened to Sean O'Brien on Friday night. He never returned to play anyway. Mm. Um, And, you know... 
the acts that, he, that Dylan Hartley's been guilty of in the past and he just seems capable of doing any juncture. I don't know what demons go on in his head. Maybe the fact that he was only on the bench. He's only started one game for Northampton this season because he had a delayed start this season. He's not doing it for his club. Rumours are in Northampton that his relationship with Jim Mallander is not as good as it could be. He's coming back from being English captain in one of their biggest games this season and he's only on the bench. The idea being that he would give everybody in the ground a big lift when he came on. He did a 10-all, whatever it was, and the game was in the balance. And then he goes and does that within six minutes as if, I don't know, is he trying to prove something? Is he trying to make a mark? Prove something to his coach, maybe even to the watching Stuart Lancaster, who wouldn't pick him as English captain. I mean, you couldn't have scripted it better. Well, Eddie, Eddie Jones, Jones yeah. there, Stuart yeah. Lancaster there, Jim Mallander there, yeah. and all these different coaches that have different relationships with him. Jones's and, reaction was priceless, really. It was yes. just, I can't believe this has happened. I've, I've put my neck out in the line for this guy. He has repaid me so far, and then I go and watch him for his club, and he's after doing this. It's the kind of thing that could could affect England perhaps in, in the Six Nations. Well, how can you make a guy who's going to, if if he's eligible come the Six Nations, he'll have totaled up around 60 plus weeks in suspensions um, for seven different suspensions at that juncture. It's sending out a curious message to make a player like that your captain, uh, despite the fact he's led them to this record-breaking run of 14 successive wins. At a stroke, I would imagine, he certainly cannot be the Lions captain. That's just now goner. Friday was the day to put on your bet on Sam Warburton and a saver and Rory Best because if Warren Gatlin said he's going to base in the Six Nations, even, whether or not Dylan Hartley, even if he was the captain of England in the Six Nations, there's no way you could countenance bring him down to New Zealand where he was born and reared initially in Rotorua. I mean, the New Zealand media, the New Zealand management, the New Zealand players would just have a field day trying to wind this guy up. Um, so I think that's a goner. It has to be. Leinster got stung a couple of years ago when Northampton, after beating Northampton heavily away from mm. home and bringing them back. And there is the issue this time of, we talk about all the young players, but, you know, Joey Carberry injured, Ross Byrne comes in at 10. I don't think anyone really knows who then, this is assuming that, that Joey Carberry won't play. I don't think anyone knows who the backup 10 would be necessarily. There really, there shouldn't be any complacency from the Leinster team based partly on what happened against Northampton, but also the fact that there's a, there are a few issues there personnel-wise. Yeah, I mean, back three seasons ago, they went to Northampton, won 47 on a Friday night yeah. and a week later didn't even get as much as a point, lost 18-9 at home. Um, so there's warning shots for them there and their cupboard is a bit thin at number 10 in the safe presumption that Johnny Sexton's not going to be wheeled out next week. You'd have to think Joey Carberry's a severe doubt with the ankle injury he sustained. So then you're down to Ross Byrne. I would imagine Easton Asabo could be your cover there. Noel Reid could be your cover there. Um, so that's a warning for them. I think what's good for Leinster at the moment is that they have a great momentum, a great spirit. They're clearly in a completely different place than they were a year ago, a bit like Munster. Um, and Northampton are nothing like the team they were three years ago. This seems to be a club in utter free fall. They had a lot of quality about them then. It's hard to it's hard to recognise Ben Foden and others as the players they were then to the players they are now. Um, I think they have played 13 competitive matches in the Premiership and in European rugby this season and they've won five. They've lost eight. This is just really poor form. Discipline is shot. Hartley's about to be their third high-profile suspension of the season already. Um, they are wounded and they are going to come out fighting, you'd imagine, in the literal sense, and or figuratively speaking rather, but they're effectively out of con- contention now in Europe as well and I, they just don't seem to be in the kind of place. I think if Leinster disabuse them of the notion of winning in the first 20 or 30 minutes of the game, then it should be sa- plain sailing for them from then on. Well, speaking of teams who 
look unrecognisable from how they used to look. <laughs> what did you make of Leicester's fairly pitiful effort against Munster? Probably a negative way to start off the chat against about Munster, who were brilliant, but it's bizarre. Was the first their biggest ever European defeat? Leicester first time they've gone scoreless in any match in thirteen years. Crazy stuff. And this is after a forty-two thirteen defeat away to Glasgow mm. as well. Um, and their away record in the Premiership is abysmal this season as well. And it's hard to think, it's hard to credit that this was the Leicester side, more or less, that completed a double at the same juncture only a year ago against more or less the same Munster side. Um, Leicester have gone seriously backwards. It's quite clear from the weekend and the results so far this season, it kind of backs up last season, that um, Saracens and to a degree Wasps are way ahead of the posse in England. They're the two outstanding teams and the rest are somewhat adrift of them. And when you think that Leicester are actually running fourth in the Premiership... um, Munster, there's no doubt since the passing of Anthony Foley, they've rediscovered themselves. They've rediscovered the old Munster, what they are about, both as an organisation, as players, as management, and also as a fan base. And they've, Toman Park has rediscovered its old magic and there's a potency and a momentum now about their form, which just makes them unrecognisable from a year ago as well. So you put the two together and you end up with a scoreline like you had on Saturday. I thought, I thought Munster absolutely eviscerated Leicester. I thought it was the perfect Munster performance. Munster mm-hmm. of old. Build up a lead through three pointers. Tighten the squeeze up front. Eventually, Leicester would have to crack and they did once Murray's that beautiful slide of hand to put Zebo through. Um... CJ Stander is playing phenomenal rugby, 20 carries. He seems to get man of the match every every Munster uh, game you, you watch. It's a joke. It, it, used to, it used to be that the out-half would always be, well, for Munster, maybe a lot of the time as O'Gara anyway, but even in any in, in any match, oh, out-half gets it. Now it's, oh, well, obviously Stander's going to get man of the match. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So I think the big, the big, big difference from Munster this season as well, just in a technical respect, and we're, we've got to give Jakun Nienaber and Razi Erasmus a lot of credit here. They're, they're not probably getting the credit they deserve. But the big difference, when I was talking to David Wallace um, last week for an article I did on the Leinster, the Leicester Munster rivalry, he said when Munster met Leicester last season, they were tending to just chop low all the time, and it was quite easy as such for Leicester to build momentum by continually getting over the gain line and scoring try, tries through phases that way. Munster's defence has been reinvented this season. It's way more aggressive. Their line speed is much more aggressive. And now they mix chop tackles with choke tackles. And they do the two together. And Stander and O'Mahony's ability to force turnovers, a slow down ball, is just remarkable. Dunica Ryan leads the lineup well as well, too. And you've got Jaco Taute, who's in, also leading the lineup very quickly. So it's an unrecognisable defence as well. Hence the nil. <laughs> yeah. You know, and. Um, yeah, it just shows you it, 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 they are unrecognisable in the way they're playing even though the personnel is largely the same. The only word of caution you would have is that um, as with Northampton, even more so with Leicester, mm. that when, nobody has ever completed back-to-back double over them in the history of this tournament. And um, six times they've lost in round three away from home. And a week later in Welford Road, Road, they've won five and drawn one. They are wounded. Their home record is very good. If I told you in their last 32 games in the European Champions Cup at Welford Road, how many would you say they've lost in their last 32? Oh, three? One. Right. Tw- uh, 29 wins, two draws and one defeat. A couple with that. So I think, you know, knowing Richard Cockrell and knowing Leicester and it'll be a full house at Welford Road, it'll be... The, Welford Road and Thoman Park are two of the great kind of fortresses or citadels of European club rugby and everything that Thoman Park was on Saturday night will be in Welford Road. That's the way he's talking as well. It's, yes. very, it's very old school but it's when they come to Welford Road next week we need to stick a stake in the ground. <laughs> we need to meet them head on. I'd be buggered if we're going to concede the pool. Yeah. And you know this pool is not over. It looks like it's a two horse race between Munster and Glasgow 
but two seasons ago Bath and Wasp both lost their first two matches and came back to qualify I think it's something to do with the five pools and now three runners up going through so it's, it's 60% of your runners up as opposed to 40% when it was two from six or 33% rather and so I think you know they're both fighting at last chance saloon both Racing Metro and um, Leicester this weekend Leicester once lost to Ulster 33-0 back in 0-3-4 um, and then a week later Welford Road beat them 49-7 so they're wounded and they're, there's more about them than Northampton they're at home this weekend um, I think what would what would be interesting this pool is how Racing respond away to Glasgow next week because if Glasgow complete the double over Racing it's conceivable that Munster are going to play play the Racing Espoirs uh, both away at home in January, which would really open the door to the last eight for them as well. You mentioned Jaco Tote there, who mm. was in pretty good form mm. again. He's only got a few games left for them, though. He's due to go back to the Stormers, yeah. uh, unless the IRFU and Munster can pull something out of the bag there. Yeah, Rassi Erasmus clearly like him to stay. Looking at the way Jaco Tote is playing, he would like to stay as well. So the question of whether the Stormers and the IRFU um, allow this to happen, my guess is they won't because um, Munster have already been bailed out financially by the IRFU, as far as I'm aware, at the start of this season. Um, financially, they're, they're, they're struggling more so than some of the other provinces. Um, their wage bill is going to have to be reduced. They have got Francis Saeli coming back from injury at some point in the new year. I would be surprised if David Nusifor allows Jaco Tote to remain. So in that case, he might only have three more games to play. This coming Saturday and the two Christmas derbies, Stephen's Day against Leinster and Thoman Park. That should be interesting as well. And New Year's Eve then will be his last game away to Connacht in the sports ground, which would also be fairly easy, interesting. <laughs> we had a big chat last week about Connacht uh, mm. and about how they were going to react to Pat Lamb's departure. But was it a non-factor in the game itself? In the end, I mean, they played they played well without necessarily applying the finishing touches on a few occasions, and ultimately they were beaten by a slightly better team. Was it? Was there any? Did you get any sense that the Lamb departure was hanging over the game? Absolutely none no. whatsoever. Completely no factor whatsoever. That was my impression. I can only go by what I saw. You're asking what I felt. I thought, I think that would have panned out exactly the same whether Pat Lamb was going at the end of the season or not, whether that announcement had been made to the players or not last Monday. I think that game pretty much would have panned out exactly the same. Far more relevant, I'm afraid, is the loss of Ali Muldowney this season. I always felt he was going to be a bigger loss even than Robbie Henshaw. And um, in the absence of other players who've been calling the lineouts, Andrew Brown, um, in this season he's been injured. Um, Quinn Rue and Ulton Delano are not experienced line-out callers and that cost them badly. I think it was five. They lost in the game. It lost them all sorts of footholds at various key moments in the match. And goal-kicking has been an issue for them all season as well. And without Boshoff, Jack Carty missed another couple. Away from home, even more so than home, you just got to take your three points because you're not going to get as many away from home, most probably. And had, they would have been level at halftime and could have been ahead going into the last quarter had Jack Carty nailed his two penalties. And heaven knows how differently the game might have panned out if they'd been winning all their lineup ball. Um, so I thought they played very well. I thought the response to 7-0 down, the way they took the game to Wasps, I thought they had Wasps on the ropes at various stages of the game and they were really rude. The fact that It's hard not to believe that Connor played so well in their three games this season in the European Champions Cup, but they had two five-metre lineouts when two points clear against Toulouse to get a fourth try and deny Toulouse a bonus point. They had ample opportunity to get a bonus point out of yesterday's game. Those two bonus points... Um, would have made the, the pool look so different for them now. As it is, they certainly have to win next Saturday in the sports ground. If they do, conceivably, themselves, Wasps and Toulouse, could be on a, all in a 13-point tie going into the last two rounds. But it's win or bust time for them now. Yeah, and uh, watching Wasps is quite similar to watching the sort of brilliant French teams that we would have, like right at the turn of the century maybe, that you kind of think after 15 minutes, 
oh, what's they're just going to run away with this. But actually, if you if you manage to uh, get over the fact that they have this like huge power in the in the front five. Mm. And in the back row, yeah, yeah great carriers. Yeah, actually, once you get past the initial burst, it's they're not maybe quite as good as you know. If you can repel that, they're maybe not quite as good as maybe they even think themselves. There, there's certainly enough there, Murph, for Connor to believe they can win the home game, and enough for the home fans to believe it. And it will be like a mini Thoman Park. It'll be packed, jammed to capacity at half five next Saturday. It's winter bus time for Connacht. I think Wasps, like I said in the programme last week, are not used to waysides coming to the Rico Arena and being prepared to keep the ball and having over 50% of the possession and not always kicking it back. At the very, right from the kickoff, uh, Connacht had the ball in their own 22 and Wasps had their back three all lined deep, waiting for the ball to be kicked to them. And Connacht said, no. They did their usual. They went back and crossed and forth the pitch. Eventually, um, they got um, a tackler not releasing and they got a penalty up the line for a line-out, which, of course, they botched. Had they not botched the line-out, who knows how the early stages might have panned out. And that was the story of the first half and much of the match. But you're right. The Wasps were were unnerved a little bit by a Connacht side. And the crowd were as well by a team that, as a result, forced more penalties because generally the team that has the ball more often will force penalties as well. And, you know, some of the shape of their attacking game was very good. What Wasps did do well, though, to counter-attack it was, and a lot of teams are doing this to Connacht now, they're pushing hard up on the outside. Um, their left winger made a couple of vital intercepts as a result. They forced a couple of turnovers by rushing up out of the line outside and forcing spillages. But when you think that Connacht lost... Um, Tiernan O'Halloran whose footwork was sensational so much of the game he really played well and Keen Kelleher and ended up with Craylon Blade a scrum half on the wing for the last 30 minutes like I said earlier a recurring theme in the last 5 or 6 weeks I thought it was remarkable they were still took the game to Wasps um, and there was enough there to make me believe that if, if they get over these injuries the one concern again is that 6 day turnaround I know it's the same for both teams but like Connacht should not be competing with a team like Wasps. Yeah, it's the, not the, the same. Very, the Rick Arena like, has a yeah. casino and a hotel and everything else. And it's all it's a magnificent stadium. And it's all owned by their Irish owner. Like, they own this, Lock, Stock and Barrel. Well, Connacht have the toes, I mean. They know. do, yeah. <laughs> Kirkley Beale is supposedly on 700 grand sterling for his one-year contract there. I, just, I wouldn't like to think how that compares to Connacht's entire budget. It'd be quite a chunk out of it. Yeah. I mean, they've no business competing with these kind of sides and to lose, but yet they are. It's a remarkable achievement. You had predicted there might be some scores in the Ulster-Claremont game, and there were. <laughs> Do you think Ulster will be kicking themselves ultimately? Now it's a great win, but you, to give Again, it a, fine margin yeah, points. Two, bonus, groups, points two bonus points. Two bonus points. It gives Claremont total control of the group. It's not a bad result for Claremont at all. And when you think that Ulster were 21 points clear with less than a quarter of the game to go, they shouldn't be allowing Claremont in for two bonus points. It completely alters complexion that group, um, as does Bordeaux's win over Ulster, uh, over Exeter. I think you'd have to presume Bordeaux will complete the double over Exeter next week as well, which means at the very least Ulster have to get something out of Claremont. And you know, you talk about um, you talk about Leicester and how they're vengeful when a team comes to them. Um, looking at Claremont, they lost away to Exeter thirty-one fourteen last year in round three. A week later, they won forty-two ten at home. Um, their home record in Europe, they've played 27 matches, won 26. Mm. Lost one, two Bordeaux last season, and they put 40 points in Bordeaux both times this season. I would have guessed that one correctly. The, yeah, you would have. You just you didn't ask me that one. They so. won seven out of seven at home this year. That is the, for, for Connacht last week, away to us, Reed Ulster this week, away to Claremont. That said, it was a spellbindingly good match, wonderful rugby, probably the match of the weekend in terms of quality of the rugby, as I suspect it would be with two, those two back lines. Uh, Paddy Jackson's try, Luke Marshall, brace of tries. Um, they were really good. I thought Chris Henry back in the back row really added something to them. The back row was sensational with Ian Henderson there as well. 
So they, they've they've been competitive over there in Claremont before. It's going to be another cracking game. But um, yeah, they've um, they've poked the bear. Yeah, all right, Jerry, brilliant stuff. Great weekend. Thanks, Cheers, thanks. Yeah, your thing's looking reasonably bright for the Irish teams. Going forward, I was going to say. Going into next weekend's games. Going forward into next weekend's games, streamlining. Yeah. <laughs> uh, looking at the results and the way that they were uh, achieved, I was watching it. This is completely... This is unbelievable. I mean, this is just sensational performances by... Like, well, up until Sunday afternoon, all of the Irish provinces. And then you kind of look at the pools and what was required of those teams to get out of those pools. And you're like, well, they've kind of done no more than no more than what they have what they have to do to try and get out of these groups i mean munster obviously poured it on against leicester in a uh, a fashion that we didn't really see coming but when you looked at what leicester had to do to get out of that pool i mean northampton not going as well as jerry said if they're going to get out of that pool they kind of nearly had to win that game ulster had to beat claremont and munster had to beat leicester at home i mean the bar is set intimidatingly high to even get to a quarter final in these uh, in these competitions, but they've done what was required this weekend. The Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast is out now. That's... Yeah. (laughs) They have asked for that, really. France are going to the World Cup. Get over it. This fellow Ronaldo is a cod. Boom, 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 the foul. Boom, 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 the yellow card. Nah, that's actually a ball, sir. I have to ask you to mind your language. And I suggest you shut up and show more football. Good lad. I don't throw teacups. It's not my style. I think I'd rather throw punches. What you doing down here, you shiny man? <laughs> well, and we talked uh, a little bit about uh, sample size, um, fairness, how to evaluate struggling players. Uh, do we um, boot them out at the, f- the first sign that they m- may not be that good? but they could still develop. Um, we were talking a lot about Lars Karius, basically, and the uh, big argument he's, uh, that he's that has set off around him, which has continued to develop since we uh, stopped recording. Um, friends are becoming enemies. Enemies, friends. As long as brothers are remaining brothers and Phil Neville is still sticking up for Gary Neville, Ken. Phil and Ga- Gary are inseparable. They speak uh, with one tongue. Uh, Siamese twins joined the mouth um, they uh, they haven't uh, been split apart yet, but Jamie Carragher and Dietmar Hamann, Anfield boot room buddies, mm. uh, have been sundered on Twitter. Oh. Although they they have now um, pals, banterously made up oh, again. Um, it began. Uh, Dietmar Hamann took exception to some of the criticism of Lars Carius. You can criticise as much as you want, but you don't tell an adult to shut up. Poor form. This is Hamann referring specifically to. Um, Phil Neville's comments that, that Karius needed to shut up and, and not criticise his brother anymore. Shut up, play football, train, shut up. This was Karius, Karius who referred to Gary Neville was a manager for a short time. Then he, then Gary Neville took exception, fired back on social media. Uh, <laughs> sorry, what's the name of that? What's the name of um, he was the singer the- who does the 2 one Azealia Banks, right? Yeah. Gary Neville basically comes over all Azealia Banks and starts firing back uh, on social media. Oh, sorry, Mr. Carius. You were totally right. I, you know, I did criticise you or I'll never criticise you again, unlike your big fan, Jimmy Carragher. Haman then says, Carragher's out of order too. Remember that Dietmar Haman and Jimmy Carragher are actually friends, at least according to their respective autobiographies they speak of many great times oh yeah I've seen, I've seen them tweet photos back of each other Kaiser and, and, so on, yeah. and Cara Cara's out of order too 
says Haman. Karius is 23 years old and played over 100 top flight games. Outrageous comments. Deserves a little more respect. Carragher then sees this tweet. You can criticize as much as you want, but don't tell another to shut up and replies, shut up. Uh, on Twitter to Haman. <laughs> he then says, Haman says, pardon? Uh, Carragher says, you heard. Weren't telling me to shut up when I got you out of that Tokyo Nick in 2005. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, that refers to an incident during the World Club Championships. Liverpool were playing in that uh, tournament in December 2005 and Di Mahama got into a bit of a scrape. He talks about it in his book. I don't think it was too serious. But filed alongside, you know, Brian O'Driscoll in, in New York, you know, when he knew the terror of, of being thrown into Sing Sing or wherever it was for, uh, for about five minutes. Um, so, uh, and this is... Uh, this is all going on. Uh, th he then posts some text messages that are exchanged between himself and the Kaiser. Heard what Neville said on Match Today. Have to have, had to have a go at him. Didn't know you said the same thing. This is Haman. Couldn't back down. I think it was far too harsh telling him to shut up. Hope you don't mind, kidder, says Haman. Haha, don't be daft, says Carragher. Uh, and so on and so forth. So it's all great that they're friends. Jurgen Klopp, however, has also got involved. Jurgen Klopp. <clears throat> Manager of Liverpool Football Club, but I think I now, know which side he's going to come down. Bearing in mind, this has all been this has been a TV pundit mm. debate. Okay, some club legends and so on, but now the now the actual manager, this has become weaponized. Criticism is part of our life. First of all, my job is to protect the players as much as I can in different situations, but they're alone on the pitch. I cannot go with them and say now left, now right. We have to prepare ourselves as much as possible. It's a normal situation to have criticism from outside. It's normal for me, for my players, for the goalkeepers. We all wish it would be different, but it's not. I'm not surprised about it. In my very first press conference, I spoke a bit about the English media, and obviously most of you enjoy it a little bit, this harsh part. The pundits are former players. A lot of them forgot, obviously, completely how it felt when they got criticised, especially the Neville brothers. I have to say, the one who was a manager, he obviously should know that too much criticism never helps. But he's not interested in helping a Liverpool player, I can imagine. But that makes the things he says not more sensible. He showed he struggled with a job to judge players. Why do we let them talk about players on television? The only thing I can do is not listen to them. I'm pretty sure Cara doesn't speak too positively about Man United players. Obviously, the Neville players, Neville, Neville brothers don't like Liverpool. And if they can cause bigger problems than we already have, I think they'll try it. That's all. Now you have your headline. You're welcome. You should have asked me the right question earlier. By the way, you can tell him I'm not on Twitter. So if he wants to tell me something, Twitter doesn't help. <laughs> Klopp. So. Too soon, man. Come on, that Valencia thing, we got to let that fester for another couple of years. Well, you know, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's an interesting to see the way this has spun out of control. Based on know. a fr innocuous enough comment in the first place about the Valencia job by yeah. Carius. Well, it's, you know, I mean, Carius said this thing uh, and Neville sort of retired. Now everyone's, it's turned into a faction fight, like, you know, a big ball of dust with like, uh, you mm. know, fists. A Donnybrook. And a 19th yeah. century Donnybrook, Kent. And, uh, I mean, how do you imagine... In a way, this is the best thing that could ever have happened to Loris Carius. I kind of... I mean, he's he's like the holy hero now. You know, I mean, <laughs> this man has been, you know, attacked by... The man by, who ended the Neville Brothers media career. May not end the Neville Brothers media career, but nevertheless. Attacked by these uh, snakes in the form of the Neville Brothers. Defended by Jurgen Klopp, King of the Cop. Mm. Uh, you know, it's... The battle lines are drawn. He's a made man. Carius a made must guy. succeed. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I, I don't know what you think of that. Is, 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 is Jurgen Klopp, uh, you know, should he have remained above all this nonsense? No. You don't think so? He's bang Never. on. Carius is bang on. They were both, they're, I think to they, be both fair, have a, they both have a right of reply here. I think, I think he does have a right to um, defend his player. Certainly, I, I can, you know, I can think back to when Roy Keane criticised, you remember Alex Ferguson's 
Manchester United getting knocked out of Europe by Basel. Was it 2011, 2010-11? And Keane was on ITV and said, you know, the usual kind of Keane stuff, I'd get a hold of these young players and smack them around and remind them what playing for Man United is about and this isn't Man United, you know. And Ferguson referred to him as a TV critic. And this was Roy Keane, one of his greatest ever players. I mean, okay, one who he had fallen out with pretty thoroughly at that stage. But still, you know, um, by comparison, I don't really think Klopp owes a lot to Gary Neville. And he's clearly not going to get any favours from him, so you no. might as well, I suppose, stick to the knife in. No, I think it's fair enough to have a go back. Andy Lee is here. Andy, how's the form? Good on. How are you? I'm not bad. Uh, I'm, you're a man who I think we know can cut through can can cut through the hype of uh, top level boxing and there's a lot of hype about Joshua now especially with the Klitschko fight announced for people who didn't see it Klitschko came into was announced by Eddie Hearn came into the ring in a WWE style promotional stunt yeah. and the two of them had a clunk, very well mannered but clunky exchanges yeah. trying to hype up their fight a little bit do you believe in the hype? Uh, the Joshua hype yeah. days I am think I'm starting to believe it actually. I don't yeah. know if I'm watching too much of too much <laughs> listening Eddie to Hearn yeah. is right and all these yeah. interviews, but look, he's a, he's a physical specimen. He's only twenty seven years old. Like that's how you want a heavyweight to look in terms of his body and his physique. And he's doing all the right things. He's beaten who's in front of him. There's not a great batch of heavyweights that he could have fought. I think they've done a good job moving him along. He beat Charles Martin, who wouldn't be a strong champion in any probably you know probably one of the worst champions in a long long time so there was a certain amount of hype they still don't know how nobody really knows how good he actually is um, and you wouldn't have been able to tell any more than you already knew from the fight at the weekend it looked no. like Molina was completely yeah. outmatched it was a matter of when he wanted to step in and land a punch I think Molina was well beaten before he even got out you know before he landed in England never mind got into the ring you know um, but you know, Vladimir now is, will be 41 when they fight. And out of the year, well, over a, out of the ring over a year. And it so. was a defeat. Was His last fight was a yeah. defeat. Uh, and I, I know Vladimir personally. I know him very well. You know, we spent a lot of time together in training camps when we both trained with Emmanuel. And um, I just think the, 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 the time off of the ring, out of the ring... Losing to Fury, I think it would have done would have done a lot of damage to his psyche. I know how how he is. What do you mean by that? How, how he is? Uh, I he's, I don't want to be I don't want to say something not too controversial, too personal. But and he's good, he is a friend of mine, and it's hard to hard to be you know critical of him. But um, I don't think he's the strongest guy. He's a strong mental, like in terms of training and preparing. He, he's but I think he's a little bit insecure in terms of that. He worries about. If we were sparring, and I'd be, you know, I'd spar quite often towards the end of his camps, and if I landed a, a jab on him, an innocuous jab, he would be worried about that until the next day we sparred, you know. Or he'd be talking about it, it would annoy him. And that's that's a good competitive edge, but it also shows a little bit of, in, like, in, for me, it shows a bit of in, insecurity. And I know, for one, he does worry about his age. And, like, if Vladimir can come back and beat Anthony Joshua, it has to be considered one of the all-time greats after his run of, of you know, of being a heavyweight for over ten years, heavyweight champion for over ten years, to regain the title. This will be his third time being champion. If if he beats Joshua, you'd have to consider him one of the all-time greats. That's an interesting point you make about his age as well. So the idea that Joshua is twenty-seven would prick a little bit at whatever insecurities he might have. Well, doesn't it for everybody? <laughs> well, yeah, I suppose this yeah. person is fourteen yeah. years younger than me, yeah. and yeah. Uh, I got to get in, into a ring with them. This. 
another interesting point about the fight, they 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 sparred before. Joshua's been to Austria and sparred with Vladimir in camp. I wasn't in that camp at the time. Um I heard Vladimir had the better of the sparring. That's what I heard from different people. But it's you can never really re- I don't know if you can read too much into sparring. One thing I know about Vladimir and how he spars is that he spars exactly like he's gonna fight. He doesn't take it easy. There's no off days. Every day he's coming into the gym sparring days, he's fully focused, fully prepared, and he's he takes them as serious as a fight, his sparring sessions. Like he's the ultimate professional. But for Joshua, well however long it's been, three or four years since then, three years, he would have progressed a lot. He's improved a lot. He, obviously he's grown confidence and, and stature. So It'll be, it'll be interesting to see, you know, how, it'll be interesting to see compared, compared to the sparring, if there was a gulf, if Vladimir was dominating the sparring, how much Joshua's improved mm. or how much Vladimir has slipped with age and time out of the ring. I've got to say, I saw them in the, when they were in the ring together afterwards and I was thinking, wow, Joshua's much bigger. He even looked taller. Mm. And then I was checking it out. I was, I was like, that, that can't be right. Vladimir is a big, big man. And I looked at it. They're both the exact same height, yeah. apparently. I just, I, maybe I was more impressed. What are they the down at? 6'6". Six, six. Uh, so it's in metres here. Um, <laughs> where is it? Yeah. They're about 6'6", six, 6'7". Six, six, 1.89 metres. Um, and it was just, well, maybe in fairness, it was because Joshua was, the, Vladimir's there in street clothes and Joshua yeah, was there with yeah. this sculpted physique that It also that looked weird in the ring when they were kind of, I almost felt like Vladimir should have took his shirt off to get in the ring or something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, <laughs> and he was just totally yeah. polite. Oh, you yeah. know, Mr. Joshua is just a great guy. We're, we're, yeah. They make you look like a trash talker, these two guys. They say nice they are to each other. But it's genuine, you know. Yeah, That's yeah. Vladimir. He's a classy person and... He's not going to be able to put on the, the no, kind of nonsense. No, I don't think either of them David Hayes style. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Is is there a is there a step that Joshua is miss is missing here between fighting a guy like Molina, mm. who's obviously no match, and jumping all the way up to to Klitschko? Because I mean, you know, everyone has wanted Joshua to to get in the ring with Klitschko, but is it happening a little too soon? And I mean, I, and I know that having what everyone having watched the, at the weekend is like, well, he can't ha- keep fighting these bums forever. Mm. But is there a kind of yeah. an intermediate level that fighter it's that maybe he should have that's taken? It's a mistake that's made with a lot of young fighters. Um, you know, they're brought along at a certain level and they're knocking out these tomato can kind of yeah. opponents. And all of a sudden, they're put in with a test. And not even a test as credible as Vladimir. You know, put him in with a reasonably good contender, not even like just, just above journeyman. And the punches that the prospects was land, were landing that were knocking out... The, the journeyman are now not having the same effect and that continues over round after round and all of a sudden you haven't knocked this guy out he's still standing in the ring and he's punching back at you and it creates a lot of doubt you know I think there's an art that's gone out of boxing and that's matchmaking you know um, there used to be guys and that was their sole profession was to be a matchmaker in boxing and there's not many of them left around the fight you know Joshua's only real fight was with Dillian White, you know, and that, that was a good win. Even though he was hurt in that fight, he showed character, he showed that he has metal, that he was hurt, rocked, and came back and stopped Dillian White. So he may have answered the question there, but since then he's had a pretty smooth run of knocking over guys when he wants to. So it is a big jump up in class. Is that not the promoter's job, though? Is he, it's a promoter, not the matchmaker, yeah. essentially, so he has to b- build the guy up to a level by level to the point that he fights Klitschko. 
Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's a job, but it, like I said, there's not a lot of... There's not a, it doesn't happen the correct way all the time, you know. It's a, it's a specific skill set yeah, that, it is. that a promoter there, doesn't have. There are these guys, the promoters, promoters hyping the fight. He's arranging with... He's talking to the venue. He's TV, you know, he's... Nego- the, the matchmaker, he... These old guys, guys like Johnny Boz and all the American guys, they would have, they'd be like an encyclopedia of boxers and they would know all the fighters who would be active and all the guys who ran and what styles they had and how, how hard or how soft they were, you know. Um, but, you know, I, they've done a great job so far with him. The, the Molina fight, I think the, the, the obviously the agreement with Klitschko was already in the bag before this fight happened. And so they didn't want to take, they couldn't take a chance with him, so... Putting him in with somebody like Molina, who was just there to make up the numbers, that was probably the the right move because even if he got a cut against, you know, if he was fighting somebody, then the fight would have to be delayed again, and then mm. the the date and negotiated with Wembley Arena, or Wembley Stadium. So I think you know it's probably the right thing to do. Katie Taylor was in there as well, fighting against Vivian Obanuf was the name of her second mm. professional opponent. Uh, Obanuf seemed delighted to finish the fight. It went uh, all six rounds, went the distance, and she was jumping around as though she'd won the thing. <laughs> Katie looked pretty annoyed with herself for, for not taking her out, maybe. Yeah, I've just heard some of her quotes since then. She said she felt pretty flat. Mm. I'm not sure if that's fighting two, you know, two weeks in a row. It was hard to peak both times, maybe physically. Um, but you're not going to knock everybody out. And she's like... Patient, you kind of have to be learned patience. It's a six round fight. Soon she'll be doing eight rounds and then ten rounds, and that's the difference between professional, like, and I was, like they're going to be tough. They're going to they're they're, they're going to be hardened to to go on the rounds, and she's just going to learn how to be patient and and realize that she's not going to blast for everybody. But still, still a great performance. I thought good body shots, good you know, great combinations, um, and. It's all it's all part of our progress. It's just another step, and she'll learn a lot more from doing the six than to knocking somebody out in a round. There's no issue though. There, uh, Obanoff said afterwards that she thinks Katie can obviously become a world champion, but that she needs to hit harder. This is somebody who's been in the ring with quite a few mm. female boxers, and, and reckons that. Uh, I suppose that's something she can develop as, as as a professional, or is it? Do you need to have it going in? No, you can develop it definitely. As an amateur, I didn't knock anybody out. Maybe one or two knockouts in maybe sixty to sixty to seventy fights. And over the years, I developed it. Um, but it's a lot to do with technique and being taught the right technique. Um, as I said before, she's got to learn how to turn her hips with the punches. And um, settle down. And there's more. It's not just knocking somebody out. It's not just about power. It's about hitting them with a punch they don't see, setting them up. What Manuel Shoot used to call it, dress them up. You know, just take them around, dress them up. You know, you throw a slow jab to the body, a slow jab to the body, and then with the same pace and the same rhythm, look like you're throwing for the jab and hit him with a right hand or a left hand to the chin. You dress him up. And there's different ways. And I'm sure she'll get it as she progresses. It's so early in her career yet. Yeah. More great advice from Manny Stewart. I'm sure there's, <laughs> there's plenty of pearls like that. Andy, listen, great stuff. Thanks a million. Thanks very much. You got that, Murph? Dress him up. Mm. That's the... <laughs> I like it's a very, very, ni- very nice sounding uh, description of an extremely brutal yeah. uh, <laughs> technique. But there you go. All right. I think I have to... Catch up on planet Earth again. I can't sit around the studio all day. Was it good? Was it good? Yeah, it was, it was different. It, it was good. Uh, I. You're a big whale man, big shark man, so I know you're disappointed. You're I thought disappointed there, I thought there might be day. some some sea stuff. I'm a man of the sea, uh, but I'm also a man of the city. And uh, there was some surprising things in there. Uh, so yeah, and uh, some 
fat animals, animals which are eating so much that they don't even have to try anymore and consequently are be beginning to develop sort of, I wouldn't say human-like intelligence. It might take a, it might take a few more years mm. to elapse before that starts to happen. But apparently they're much more intelligent than their country cousins. It's horrible. It's awful, isn't it? But it has to do with the plentifulness of food. Yeah. The struggle for existence is sort of taken away so they can kind of sit around and, you know, try stuff out. Oh, it's kind of a cafe culture. Good. I'm looking forward to this episode of uh, Planet Earth. Freaking, the pigeon ca cafe culture that, that's uh, been going on under my nose that I've yeah. never realised. Thanks, Murph. Thank you, Owen. Thank you, Ken. Thanks, uh, Kieran. Thanks, Thanks very much, Ken. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Take care. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 